We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want Tyree Jackson throwing. Boy, that ball exchanged hands a couple of times, and Ray Ray McLeod finally came down with it. Barkley lofting one, far sideline, caught into the end zone for the touchdown is Duke Williams. Second goal from the six. Cutting back inside into the end zone for the touchdown is Isaiah McKenzie. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill's season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Greg Gumbel of CBS Sports talking about three big plays by three guys fighting to make that final 53. It's going to be Duke Williams. We all know that. <laughs> who, who knows? I know. Woo, what a weekend, folks. What a week since we last recorded. Think about everything that's gone on. Chris, I think one of the most relevant things that I took away from this weekend in football is how much I just can't stand Indianapolis Colts fans. You might... if I thought if, Patriots fans were bad. If you went to preseason games and that happened, you would be that guy booing. I have gone to preseason... Okay, folks. For those of you out there listening, I'm sure you all know, because you even give football some cursory attention. As you know, Andrew Luck retired from football in shocking fashion to everyone who follows football, and especially to that fan base. He retired after the preseason game on Saturday night. I was at a bar. I look up. I see it come across the ticker. I was watching the Miami-Florida game, and I just started laughing. I was like, that's hysterical and shocking. And I'm sure it screwed over a ton of people in fantasy football, which is also funny to me. So... There, I, I get it. You know, then, then there's report. You know, people are upset, but there's reports that they booed the man as he was walking off the field. He was booed by a large contingent of fans to the point that you could hear it on the TV broadcast. Chris, would you boo a guy for retiring from football? No, especially not with his 
you know, with his injury history that he's had. And I did, I did see the uh, the Colts weren't going to go after his like signing bonus, like twenty eight million or whatever mm-hmm. that they could. What they should do is go after money that uh, should be owed to them from Ryan Gregson for putting <laughs> together an offensive line that literally forced somebody into early retirement. But instead, Chris, their anger isn't with the GM that ran the team like ass, like just a just an enormous tire fire for the best part of Andrew Luck's career. If you have a brain, that's how he got injured. Of course, but instead... You're no, drunk no. at a preseason game. No, 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 no. Their anger is with Andrew Luck and the franchise. And this is where... It, <laughs> You want to feel bad for these guys. You're like, oh, it's just a couple weeks before the season and your starting quarterback announced that not only am I not coming back anytime soon, I'm not coming back at all. I'm done. You, it, But to call the franchise and inundate them with phone calls and demands that you want a refund on your season ticket money, that is a bridge too far for me. Chris, do you know how many seasons... I've endured owning season tickets. Uh, is this like by your count or the actual Buffalo Bills? By my count. Do you know <laughs> you've, how You've many... had seasons for like, what, eight, nine years? I'd have to go look at it now at this point. They all blend together because of the alcohol. <laughs> but at this point, I remember. I saw something on my Facebook feed pop up because they love to remind you of terrible shit that you put on Facebook back before you knew people would audit that. That's what I've been deleting <laughs> lately. So... I see this thing pop up, and it's talking about how Stephon Gilmore is injured. Stephon Gilmore, our Pro Bowl cornerback, or could be Pro Bowl cornerback, goes down with an injury. Kevin Cobb gets taken out by a friggin' mat. He's done. You have EJ Manuel who's hurt going into week one. And my response to it after outlining all the things that were going to go wrong with that season, and inevitably did, was all right. I guess I need to, I, I guess I need to batten down the hatches. Get my liver ready for this because it's going to be another rough season of football. That's what a fan does. You support your team. And it's not bad enough that they're bailing. these guys are bailing on their season ticket commitment to their team. It's that it's coming from one of the most quarterback-spoiled franchises in recent history. You had, you had well, how many years, Chris? Uh, 98, they drafted Peyton Manning. 98, you drafted Peyton Manning. And then how many years is that until they drafted Andrew Luck? 2000, I think 2010 or 2011, they went 2-14. and 14, Yeah. Got the first over. Well, they didn't have Manning. The, Manning listen, was injured. I will say this. I will never forget. I could never root for the Andrew Luck Patriots because I knew that they bottomed out intentionally. They started Curtis Painter at quarterback. Oh, I forgot that that guy They refused existed. to spend free agent money that year intentionally to get Andrew Luck. They got him. You can't root for that team, and I refused to. And now that the Luck era is over, I'm sorry, you guys were still a pretty damn good football team, even though he didn't win you a Super Bowl. So with that said, Chris, to turn around now and demand money back like the team owes you something, that's I don't even know what to call that. Cowardly, gutless, there's a lot of things that come to mind. Just how spoiled as a fan base and as a franchise do you have to be? Ugh. <laughs> Boy, if, you know, to, to put a bill spin on this, the Indianapolis Colts are one injury away from Chad Kelly. <laughs> Ultimately, guys, I just, 
it was that. This is the. This is the. I guess for the entire preseason, this is the best I've felt coming into a podcast. And it's because reflecting and stewing on this indie mess all weekend made me realize how lucky I am. Like, hey, we might not win a ton, but at least, at least these colors don't run. All right, <laughs> at least these colors don't run. And with that said, I think I think it's a perfect place to start the podcast, Chris. <laughs> yes, rant over. Uh, for those of you out there who want to come watch a football game with somebody who rants about football, or is at least this fired up about it, got to plug this early in the show so that none of you fast forward past it like you do at the end of the show. Yeah, I know who you are. You all know who you are. Chris and I are going to be at 34 Rush at Batavia Downs Week 1 against the Jets. Sunday, September 8th, tailgating games outside. A ton of swag is going to get given away. Autograph merchandise, food and drink specials starting at 11 o'clock. I'm going to be there. Chris is going to be there. We're going to be broadcasting with Ryan Lacell and Icy Vic of The Huddle over at Rock Sports Network. And Dan Borello. And Dan Borello, a resident donkey. And... It's, it's just going to be a fun time. We're going to be talking about football or expectations for the season. We're going to get to interview Thurman Thomas. He's going to be there that day. It's a great time to come out if you've ever wanted to see somebody get unnecessarily loud in a public place about a football game. And this will be at a casino, which in <laughs> Batavia, old people are there. You might cause some people to have heart attacks. I don't know, but it's going to be a lot of fun. You guys should all join us there and come check it out. And if you can't, go stream it live as we interview Thurman Thomas over at Rock Sports Network on Facebook. We'll post a link in the show's description. Oh, man, I'm excited, but we've got some business to take care of before we can talk about 2019. Because the Bills just played what is normally the preseason dress rehearsal, Chris. You know, you know what I mean? This is usually when you try to get all your ducks in a row before you go into the regular season. And with that, we need to recap what happened in week three. The Bills won 24 to 20. Here's my stats of the game. Josh Allen, three of six, 49 yards. The Buffalo Bills running backs, 25 rushes, 103 yards, 4.12 yards per attempt, two rushes of over 20 yards. The Bills starting defense against the Lions starting offense, 137 passing yards allowed, 40 rushing yards allowed, 10 points, no sacks. And then penalties. The Bills, 12 for 106 yards. Both teams combined 21 penalties for 187 yards. I thought Ed Hockley retired. (laughs) Oh, no, Chris, no, you can't. You Wait, can't. his son was call, he was doing the game, right? His son was the ref? I don't think so. God, what? Nope. Folks, can we please stop playing the Detroit Lions in the preseason? I told you this was going to be crap. I don't care what the scoreboard says. This was one of those games that people who don't give a shit about football will point to when they ask the question, how do people watch this game? Chris, this game was on CBS. This was the nationally televised game. Yeah, and let's let's state in the preseason preseason the network looks at all the matchups for week three and they pick that game. Oh, we're gonna do Buffalo Detroit nationally. America needs to see these two teams play in their dress rehearsal. Can you imagine if like those suckers up in Winnipeg, you got conned into paying a hundred dollars to watch that game? I'd on fight a, everybody. On an 80-yard field. 80-yard <laughs> field. 
This is all lunacy. And I mean, this game had more ugly than you can shake a stick at. First of all, you a fan of the guys, of guys dropping the ball on special teams? Oh, you got it. Victor Bolden. Bye. They, they gave him a shot and he drops the football. Beasley has a fumble. When does Cole Beasley fumble the football? Chris, I don't even blame the players for this. I blame the fact that it's the Bills playing the Lions. It's like the Bills and Browns. This game is a shit magnet. You know all of the bad things that are floating around in the ether that could happen to a professional football team are magnetically attracted to those matchups. Yeah, we uh, should we should not we don't should not have to play them in the preseason. Just keep it every four years in the regular season. Here's the crazy thing: Beasley drops the ball in traffic as he's trying to bring it in for a catch. Victor Bolden catches a punt, or was it a kick return, and immediately fumbles it as soon as he gets hit. And yet somehow LaShawn McCoy runs around out here holding the ball like a loaf of bread with one hand and never drops it. Can he just once a week put on a clinic? They should make it part of like their, their, what do you want to call it, their practice schedule. One hour grip training with LaShawn McCoy. I don't understand it. What about penalties? Oh, oh, boys and girls, do you like flags? For maybe the first time ever, I saw a defensive lineman get called for holding on a running play. Think about that. A man trying to get to the ball carrier and tackle him was somehow called for holding. I don't even know what that means. Chris, I don't know. I, I watched don't know. The, how, is, how is that possible? I watched the play 12 times and I can't tell you what happened. I don't know what went wrong that drew a flag. And when you look at the reaction of the player and the people on the sideline, nobody knew either. Five holding calls on the offense. 11 total holding calls between all three phases of the Bills game. A total of 59 yards. And just just penalties. One way or the other. It's just on holding calls, Chris. I mean, think, think about this from this perspective for our listeners. The clock stopped an extra 21 times between both teams. When you factor in replay reviews, TV stoppages, the coaches' actual, their, their actual called timeouts, based on my math and my rough estimate in terms of my football drinking pace, that resulted in an extra three to four beers over the course of the game. So... Honey, if you're listening to this podcast, blame the Bills and the Lions penalties for that 2 a.m. steak sandwich that I was making that woke the entire house up, okay? It's not my fault. Clearly, they are the ones at fault for this. Chris, how do you watch a football game that stops the clock, what is it, 21 stoppages in a 60-minute game? And it's on national television. (laughs) Yeah, CBS. Thank you. Oh, and, and injuries. That's the, woo, we're getting, we're working our way down the iceberg here, folks. You missing injuries in your life? I said, give me a hell yeah. <laughs> After going for weeks without so much as an injury scare, I, I got to watch Frank Gore, Quentin Spain, and Trey White all rolling around clutching their extremities. <laughs> and then you look at the opposite sideline for the Lions. Offensive lineman Frank Ragnow and uh, middle linebacker Draw Davis. Draw Davis ends up leaving on a cart. 
uh, Frank Ragnow can't put any weight on his leg as he's carried off the field. Chris, you know who I blame for this? Matt Patricia. Myself. I blame myself for this because in the previous week's podcast, I called something, not playing your starters, I called something like that common sense and pointed out the fact that the rest of the NFL is avoiding doing this specifically for that reason, unnecessary injury risk. So obviously the Bills and Lions would do the opposite. Clearly that's what they did. Oh, I feel like I willed it into existence. I should have known better, and I apologize to everyone. This is my fault, clearly. I mean, luckily, it sounds, Chris, like every, every, everyone's going to be okay. I mean, if, if you're following Kyle Trimble over at Banged Up Bills, you know, I know he's working for Buffalo Rumblings right now, too, putting out injury updates. It sounds like everybody's going to be okay. That's the only reason I'm not apoplectic about this right now. Well, you have... Um... What not injured in the game, but you do have Robert Foster, who you have the Seagram's bet on, who apparently has got turf toe. So This is just, just keeps getting better over here, folks. Just keeps getting better for all Drew Gear this offseason. So as I reviewed this game, it was tough. I had to watch the condensed version of it on Game Pass. I couldn't watch the whole thing, the TV broadcast. Even the condensed version, Chris, took f- almost 50 minutes which is excessive. Oh, my God. Which is excessive for the condensed version of a game. You're supposed to be able to watch it in 30 minutes. But I went back because, as I always I mean, think about how hard that is, Chris. I'm up at 10 o'clock at night trying to watch my way through this sober. Sober because I have to work in the morning. Nobody should uh, be allowed to watch preseason football sober. <laughs> you legally should be drunk to watch preseason football. <sighs> Some of my takeaways... First of all, I wanted to see the front seven against Matt Stafford. I mean, when you take a look at the benching trend that we talked about last week, one of the side effects has been the fact the Bills have only have played their first two games against a pair of backup quarterbacks to start the preseason. So while our front seven looked really good over the first few weeks, I was wondering what they would look like against an offense with a starting caliber quarterback. You know what I mean? That's You want that. You want to see what it looks like when you go up against somebody who's actually thrown for 3,000 yards. I was encouraged by what I saw out of the starting defense in terms of run defense. And they finished with three tackles for a loss. Just in terms of the starters versus the Lions starters when Matt Stafford was under center. Three tackles for a loss and only one gain of more than five yards on more than 10 rushing attempts. That's pretty solid. Even if you are talking about vanilla preseason offense and defense. And everywhere else around the field, I, I saw sound tackling in space. You know, whether it was on short passes, whether it was on... I didn't see any instances of running backs or wide receivers in the open field generating yards after contact or yards or significant yards after catch. I mean, think about what tanked our defense last season, Chris. That inability to execute which you could partially blame on just the youth of our linebacking core. I've noticed that this team seems not only really aggressive against the run, they penetrate very well, and they tackle soundly in the open field. I think that that bodes really well for the team going forward. If this is, in fact, which it better be the last I see of them on the field until we play the Jets in week one. I also went through, because I remember wondering, you know, talking about all the sacks that the Lions had taken. And then as I was watching the game in real time, wondering, what the hell? 
Why are we putting no pressure on Matt Stafford? Well, when you go back and you look at his 19 pass attempts, nine of them came from the shotgun formation, and another four of them came off of play action. When you're going into a game that's supposed to have very little, you know, what do you want to call that? Game planning, quote unquote? Vanilla game planning. They did everything they could, kind of like the Bills had done to this point of the preseason, to keep Josh Allen from getting hit. (laughs) They did a lot of that for Matt Stafford. They kept him away from, you know, any obvious pass rush. They had a few plays, obviously, where they threw it from under center. With that... I guess if I'm talking about our front seven in terms of pass defense, it makes sense then under those circumstances that the pass rush would have a hard time getting home. They're running misdirection at you, and they're playing a lot out of the shotgun, which doesn't bode well for your pass rushes to begin with. You know, we saw, like, think back to the game where we thought we were going to break the decibel level. You know, they talked uh, at New Era Field. Yeah, that was not going to happen. But they talked about how our front seven was going to get after Tom Brady that game, and our pressure was going to be the thing that did it. And we were going to wreck Tom Brady. And they played 80-something percent of the game's snaps out of the shotgun. And we didn't get a single sack. Or at least we didn't in the first three quarters when they ran up the score on us. It was the same kind of idea with Matt Stafford. And I understand why you do it. You're putting your quarterback out there for the first time all preseason. You're not going to open him up to injury. You're going to call, not conservative game plan, but a conservative game plan in terms of opening up Matt Stafford to risk. And they did a really nice job of that. Chris, I don't know if you noticed, but there was also a lot of a lot of TJ Hawkinson flashing throughout the course of the game. Oh yeah, your boy. Good the, old number 88, TJ Hawkinson. The touchdown pass that Matt Stafford threw over Matt Milano. Yeah, there was our linebackers in coverage, I, I, I want to blame some of that just on the fact that they're rusty. And I think that that's the benefit of seeing a starting quarterback in the preseason, is it gives you tape to go back and learn off of. When you have Jacoby Brissett throwing the ball, trying to throw the ball over your linebackers to a tight end, I don't know how that's going to, you know what I mean? There's no way to really gauge where you are on the spectrum of good defense or bad defense when that's what you're working with. I think that ultimately, I'm really happy how the front seven played. And I think that this gives them an opportunity to go back and take a look at some of the wrinkles that worked against them and figure out where the miscommunications happened so it doesn't happen again. But ultimately, i got to say, I, I'm not concerned about our front seven. I'm, in fact, I'm really optimistic about that heading in after what I've seen through three weeks of you know, three weeks of games and obviously this past week. Yeah, because all of our turnover this offseason was on the offensive side of the ball. And you want to know that the offensive side of the ball has chemistry. Well, and that's it. Now, the topic of Josh Allen and our play calling by design. This is something that I said to you, Chris, in the middle of the game. Middle of the game, I looked at you. Half in the bag. Said, hey, they're really not, they're really not giving Josh Allen any chance to get into this game. No, I didn't like that at all. Well, all those running plays to, to Gore and McCoy. Like, I know, how, I already know the way those two run. They've been in the league since the 60s. You know that. You First of all, you don't know anything. You don't know that a grown man shouldn't be walking around with a mohawk with putty in his hair. I Travis mean, Bickle, you, you Uber. It's a clay. You but. literally could be taxi driver between your Ubering and this stupid haircut. But with that said, you got to talk about Josh Allen the way this goes. I, After looking at it, I like what they did. And it was interesting to pick through. Josh Allen's night, obviously, far from stellar. His three incompletions were terrible balls. He throws the one behind Beasley on an out route that's literally in his, I think, mid-calf area. Just way behind him. 
The one to Zay Jones that was just a rocket when I think a quarterback should realize when his wide receiver is not looking at him. And then, Chris, the piece de resistance. Luckily, he caught a flag on the play for one of the most, I mean, I think during the broadcast, um, who, who, who co-hosts with Greg Gumbel? I think it's Trent Green. Okay, so Trent Green, former quarterback, announced during the game that he'd seen more contact during a game of Canasta than he'd than, than he saw on the play where Josh Allen got the flag for roughing the passer. He threw the same ball that he threw against Green Bay last season that resulted in I, I think one of the ugliest interceptions I've seen a Bills quarterback throw in a long time. He did it again. Okay. <laughs> But it's not like the team gave him many opportunities to really get into a rhythm. And he talked about that a little bit in his post-game press conference. We went out today and we tried to set our mind to establishing the run first. Um, you know, and a couple plays, you know, got, got ahead of ourselves there and put, a certain, put ourselves in some bad situations. But we stuck with it, um, popped off some really good runs with Frank and LaShawn. And, um, you know, last two-minute run with uh, Motor was really good. Too. Obviously, I, w- I wish I was a little smarter with the football tonight. And there's... One play in particular, we got bailed out there, but something that I just I can't do, you know, and I know I can't do that, but I'm, I'm glad it happened in the preseason. Um, just a little reminder of, you know, what I can and can't do. Um, I understood that we wanted to run the ball, and um, I wanted to take a shot, and, uh, you know, I can't go with that mindset, so um, I got to be, be smarter with the football there. Josh Allen, post-game press conference over on buffalobills.com. Chris, the team was never going to give him a solid chance to do much with his arm. And it changed their play calling. And you watched the shift in play calling when they put Barkley in. Mostly because I suspect that they wanted to see, they, they wanted to give those backup wide receivers more reps. You know, something we talked about, that we've talked about as being one of the biggest position battles going on right now. So I guess there's a part of me that wonders if his knowledge that he wasn't going to be a big part of the game plan didn't leave him trying too hard to make a lot of plays happen when they just weren't there. Notice at no point during the game did Josh Allen check the ball down. Not a single pass to a running back. I think that what you're seeing is the fact that he knew he wasn't part of the game. I'm not trying to make excuses for the guy. But if you know you're only going to get a handful of of opportunities, you're going to try to put your stamp on that game. That's just what you do as a competitor. So in his, what, six attempts, he tried to do too much. And it came back to bite him in the ass. And he's right. Good thing it happened now and not week one because week one, I might actually throw a bottle of beer across the room. So there's that. <laughs> and, and it's, I guess I, when, when I take away from what our starting offense looked like based on this run heavy design, our starters look like starters, Chris. So you say that we don't need to see it, but I argue we do. They were, they were made a focal point of the offense, and you saw in each running back the best of their individual skill sets. McCoy, multiple runs that illustrated the fact that he still has wiggle in his game. I mean, he had one where we're backed up inside of our own 10, and he turned what should have been a tackle for a loss into an eight-yard game. You, you take a look. Include, I counted four plays as I'm rewatching it, including one that was negated by a penalty where I think he had, like, so something crazy like a 16-yard gain, where his elusiveness avoided negative plays and turned him into a positive gain. That's what you want to see out of him, Chris. That's why you turn your attention to the running backs now. You spent two weeks showcasing your quarterback. Let's make sure that this thing that we, we believe can be the engine that drives us in 2019 actually runs. Frank Gore, 
for one cutability. You saw it. He takes a handoff. McCoy, when you watch his style, he's a little he tries to be a little patient. He tries to set up the defenders, figure out where his creases are, and then go. Frank Gore is a perfect complement to that. You saw it in the game because he just puts his foot in the ground and gets upfield. But he still has a really good feel for how creases are developing. I mean, Chris, he had what, a 26 yard run? 22, 23? The play that he got hit out of bounds on? Where sure. he, I didn't even know that he was, it didn't even look like he was running that fast. But he saw the way it was developing. We the, the offensive line blocked a solid hole for him, and he hit it quickly and got to the second level faster than the defense was prepared for. That's what you want to see out of Frank Gore. Singletary. He had one carry, and even with that one lone carry, he made the most of it. You know, he takes that nine yards, and he gets hit by a defender at the two-yard line. But he's got enough contact balance to maintain forward progress and get into the end zone for a touchdown. That's the reason you drafted this guy. All in all, Chris, I mean, even hell, I, if i got to give him props, even T.J. Yeldon. Even T.J. Yeldon showed that as a, pass, as a pass catching back, he's got the skill set you're looking for. You saw what, you know, at the beginning of the season when we were talking, preseason, when we were talking about the depth of this running back group, that's the thing that got everyone excited was the fact that we have four running backs on this team who can all all have a varied skill set and have proven they can do it well. There you've got uh, Frank Gore coming off what his highest season yards per attempt. LaShawn McCoy hopefully having a rebound. You saw flashes of this from everybody. So while it's still the preseason, it's good to see it. It's good to see it happen it, but behind an offensive line that's slightly depleted from what you're going to be getting come week one. Where I have a question from watching all this, Chris, is where it comes to Patrick DeMarco. And this is the fight that I've been having with people all day. This time of year, everybody's fighting for a job. And so I have to ask the same question I asked last year at this point. What is Patrick DeMarco doing here? Last year, he was voted a captain. And I I have a really hard time understanding why. Of all the starters in the first half, I counted just three plays where DeMarco was even on the field. The team ran the ball 14 times without him, no matter which running back was on the field, and their biggest plays on the ground came when DeMarco was on the bench. Then you go back and you look, think about 2018 when it comes to Patrick DeMarco's presence on this roster, because I've heard every defense of this guy imaginable. When you look at him for the Bills in 2018... He was fifth in for all fullbacks in the NFL in offensive snap percentage. But that's only 15.9% of all the snaps. It's 168. Okay, The number one fullback in football had 700. One rush for nine yards and three catches for 52 yards. Those are the only, only offensive contributions DeMarco had. And he played roughly about half of your special team snaps. 53%. So when you're talking, when, when you look at those, I get it. Everyone likes to point to the thing, wow, well, a fullback, it's, it's not quantifiable like it is running backs. No, it's not. But you know what also isn't hard to see? That this offense seems to click without Patrick DeMarco. Well, you've talked about it multiple times since we've had McCoy, that McCoy's uh, run styles are so unpredictable a fullback in front of McCoy is just absolutely not needed. Because you don't know what way he's going to cut. Before DeMarco, before Mike Tolbert, 
We went out and... Uh, uh, Jerome Felton? Jerome Felton. Pro Bowl. Pro Bowl fullback. Another one. He was highly irrelevant in front of LaShawn McCoy. So if LaShawn McCoy is in fact your guy going into 2019, why is Patrick DeMarco here? And why when you're talking about guys fighting for their jobs... What is the value of a fullback in an offense that needs help at other skill positions, needs all the bodies they could get, and could, I put in quotes, could convert a tight end to an H-back role for the plays where they think they need a lead blocker coming out of something like an I-formation? It would give you another roster spot to spend elsewhere. I think this game underscores the fact that he is not necessary to the success of our rushing attack. It's just not. And if you were to remove him from the roster, you would be opening up a spot for somebody else. And that brings us to the wide receiver competition. The wide receiver competition got even more interesting this week. Yeah, because you heard it in the intro. McKenzie got in the end zone, Duke Williams got in the end zone, and then Ray Ray had that weird catch, like that pinball catch, and kept his feet in bound. Well, that's the thing. You, you, you think about it. It was strange to see how many snaps these quote-unquote backup wide receivers got when you figure that the plan wasn't to throw the football a ton. McKenzie, getting snaps with the ones. It seems like it would be something of a surprise, but on that jet sweep, that was executed perfectly. And he clearly has the speed to execute that type of a play. Now, one of the things that I think people forget is that that jet sweep, con- that concept that they ran. You know, you put somebody, put a small wide receiver in the slot, and then bring him on motion across the quarterback's face, snap the ball, hand it to him, but fake the handoff to the running back, and watch him burn everyone to the corner. Chris, you saw it play out in front of you. That's a lethal play when you're tight in next to the goal line like that. Because the defense is already spread out so far trying to cover all your wide receivers. It's a concept that Dable is a huge fan of. He ran it a ton last season. And McKenzie was the benefactor of that. A look back at the records from Pro Football Pro Football Reference last year. McKenzie ran the ball 10 times for two touchdowns and a 6.6 yards per attempt average. And of those runs, none of them were traditional handoffs. They were always either shovels behind the line, jet sweeps, gadget runs. So the fact that he's out there running it successfully during what's supposed to be a dress rehearsal is interesting. Because it... And just in terms of what it flags for where the team views him and his potential. I feel like that McKenzie touchdown on the jet sweep, that could also be run by Ray Ray. He's got speed. And even if you want to throw John Brown in there, I feel like John Brown could do that jet sweep. But Duke Williams, his touchdown catch embodied everything that's not in our wide receiver room. Well, that's the cra- – that touchdown – He's still the thing you took away from Duke Williams' performance is just the fact that he's standing out because he's the biggest wide receiver we have on the roster. And I guess the thing that I've grown accustomed to watching the fact that Andre Holmes was on this roster the last two years. That guy was six foot what, six foot five? Six foot four and a half, six foot five. He was big for no reason because he didn't use his size to his advantage and was seemingly never open enough for quarterbacks to throw it to him. Meanwhile, you, you're watching Duke Williams create separation just with sheer size. He's just body. He's, he's playing basketball over the top of these cornerbacks out there. It's incredible. And that touchdown pass, Chris, to have the body control. To go up in the air, 
catch this, realize you're not going to get tackled, and somehow have the balance to still walk to the end zone like that. It looked like when you're trying to he play keep even, away from a child, yeah. like when you have a ball and you're trying to tease a kid with it. Yeah, he never brought the ball into his body. And don't you judge me out there like you've never teased children with anything before. Come on, you're not better than me. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's, I don't know. He's the, besides Zay Jones, he's the only other wide receiver on the roster over 6-1. And the fact that he's using that size over and over and over again to make plays you have to give some credence to his presence on the roster. And then Zay Jones. Now, speaking of Zay Jones, the second half of preseason games is typically reserved for your backups and for players who are fighting for a spot on the team. So it was weird seeing Zay Jones out there way into the fourth quarter. And I I think that when you look at his numbers, they were what you'd expect to see from a a quote-unquote starting wide receiver going up against backups. Four targets, three catches, 46 yards with a long catch of 29 yards. I mean, that was a nice play, Chris. You can't deny that. But it makes you ask the question, why the hell was he still on the field? Now, at first I was mad about it. I was just like, this is just another example of McDermott not knowing when to take... He's having an Adam Gase moment where he's leaving one of his starters out there on the field for way too long for seemingly no reason. Then, over the weekend, as I thought about it more and I rewatched the game, it brought me back to 2016, thinking about a player named Manny Lawson. When the Buffalo Bills drafted Shaq Lawson and found out that he needed shoulder surgery, Rex Ryan couldn't say enough about Manny Lawson. He called him his quote-unquote super sub, compared him to having a great sixth man in basketball. I've got a quote from him. When talking to the media about Lawson and the fact that because everyone wanted to know about Shaq Lawson's injury and how they were going to respond, his quote on Lawson was as follows. Well, he can back up all four linebacker spots, right? Outside, left outside, you know, inside backers. You can put him anywhere. And that, that is really the way he can work because he is such a smart player. Fast forward a month into the preseason, week four rolls around. And he's out there taking snaps against the Detroit Lions in a preseason football game, week four. A game usually not played by anybody who's part of your long-term plan. He played 39% of the defensive snaps and 28% of the special team snaps in that game and was gone from the roster within three days. The explanation, Chris, that Rex Ryan gave to the media? Well, first off, I think Lorenzo Alexander is the guy. We brought him in, number one, to be a special teams player for us and thought he might have a role on defense. At no point did I think his role would be a starter for us, but he's earned that right. Now, I understand that this is a different regime. I mean, they actually made the playoffs instead of just bullshitting about it. (laughs) Just standing on a microphone pontificating. And they operate wildly, wildly differently than the Rex Ryan era. And this may very well end differently for Jones. Because I, I've been straightforward all offseason that I believe he is a lock for this roster. But we heard last week in some of the audio clip we played from Brian Dable, some of the same things and some of the same buzzwords that you heard from Rex Ryan before they got rid of Manny Lawson. You know, they gave him all the pats in the back you can imagine. It's a recent reminder that even I myself forget until I actually look at it that until the final roster comes out, 
this whole situation is fluid, no matter how much praise a staff might heap on a kid at one point or another. I mean, what's your take on that, Chris? I mean, I, I personally, I was a little irritated that you're playing Zay Jones in the fourth quarter. I mean, I, I figured at that point he's he's a lock, and you want and you were getting it from the guys lower on the depth chart in the game. The catch from Ray Ray, touchdown from Duke Williams. Maybe that's I, I the would, point. I want to see more of from those guys. They were making plays. I'm just willing to point out that maybe that's the point. <laughs> maybe that's the point, Chris. My final thoughts on it all? Thank God that's over. I don't think I could watch any more preseason football. I'm not even gonna I'm gonna not, I'm gonna be at a work function. I'm not even gonna see the next the, see the last game. I don't, I don't, and you know what, Chris? I don't care. I don't care that I'm not watching the last preseason game. You don't watch Tyree Jackson? <laughs> no, absolutely not. You think he'll throw the ball backwards? Oh, Jesus, hopefully not. But if he does, I won't be there to see it anyway, so I don't give a damn. All right, and so every single offseason, we bring you guys a preview of what's going on around the division. And so far this offseason, we've been visited by uh, Joe Caparoso from Turn on the Jets. He was a great, you know, we had a great conversation with him. Obviously, the only Patriots fan we can even stomach, Christian Simonelli, he joined the program. People seem to like him. He seems like a nice guy, even though, I mean, Chris, it, it bothers me that he's always downplaying how badly the Patriots are going to beat our asses every year. <laughs> and so that brings us to the final chapter of our Around the AFC East segment for the offseason. And of course, it finishes with the Miami Dolphins. Travis Wingfield. Soccer-style kicker. Graduated from Collier High, June 1976. Stetson University Honors graduate, class of 1980. Holds two NCAA Division I records, one for most points in a season, one for distance. Former nickname, The Mule, the first and only pro athlete ever to come out of Collier County and won a hell of a model of America. Locked on Dolphins podcast. But this is Miami, pal. Mr. Wingfield, how are you doing this evening? Hey, first thing off the top, I have a grievance to, to file with you, Drew. <laughs> oh, boy. So today on Twitter, you dragged me into a conversation with, I assume, a Bills fan. And <laughs> you, you got me into a conversation that took about 25,000 brain cells out of my head. So <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> hey, listen, listen. If, if anybody who, any, any of our listeners know from the intro to last week's podcast, there are people out there that will do that to you. That's part of that. Apparently, that's become part of being a Bills fan now. Is just assuming that we're going to trade Laramie Tunzel, Kenyon Drake, and a first round pick for Jadavian Clowney. Oh my God! Well, they, uh, up until today, you guys did have Jordan Mills. So <laughs> there's your there's your replacement. Before this whole thing comes off the rails, for our new listeners, new to the show, this is Travis Winfield, host of the Lockdown Dolphins podcast. He does some fantastic work over there, and he's actually one of our show's oldest guests. It feels like forever since we've been able to have him on the show to chat. I'm, I'm pumped that you found the time to join us, man. You sound like you're keeping busy. It's crazy right now, man. Between going back to school and, and the podcast kind of taking off the way it has, as well as the website, and like, you know, I go all summer trying to scrounge for content, like talking about best games from the 2002 Miami Dolphins season. <laughs> and now it's like I'm writing stuff out of the show because there's just so much going on right now. So I, I can't complain because it's more fun, but my goodness, it's, it's a lot of work. A lot of work, but it seems like it's paying off. According to Apple Podcasts, your show was outpaced, outranking Tony Kornheiser's podcast. 
pranking Tony Kornheiser. And it's a Dolphins podcast. <laughs> I didn't even know. When you look around the Dolphins stadium on game day, I wouldn't even assume that they had that many fans. And yet here your podcast is trumping someone who's... I, I, Host I, of PTI. <laughs> Many ESPN shows, the sports reporters you know, we, we, back in the day. We share the ESPN. Uh, you know, we're both frequently on, right. on ESPN, so we do share that, Korn, Kornheiser and I. Well, that's, that's right. one thing I want to talk to you about. So, I'm folks, just I'm joking, by the way. For those of you who may have seen the picture that we tweeted out about his appearance in the first place, it was a screenshot from ESPN's broadcast from Dolphins training camp. At approximately two inches behind uh, Josh Rosen's <laughs> dumb face, there's our boy, Travis Wingfield, standing behind him with his shades on. <laughs> Almost looked like you were part of his entourage. It was actually kind of funny. So you had credentials for the first time in your life to Dolphins training camp. What was that like? Oh, it was an unreal experience, man. Like, the, you know, I think a lot of fans get a little bit star-crossed when it comes to seeing players up close. And I understand that the first couple of times. But after a few times, you become desensitized to it. And the biggest part to me was just blown out with all the beat writers. Like, all these Dolphins beat writers, and I think this might be the tr- the case for most teams' beat writers, is, like, you get this idea of how they are in their Twitter persona or their column, but they're all just guys doing a job, man. They were so much fun to hang out with, and they were very welcoming to me and didn't treat me like less than or a newbie. It, we went out, you saw the picture with Omar Kelly, went out in downtown Miami on the, the last night there. So just hanging out with those guys all day and being part of like the media crew was was so much fun. And also the player access can't hurt either. So I got tons of good sound uh Excuse me. Sound clips, and then the podcast and the and the journals those days after practice was just so awesome because that's like football in its purest form. Those practices and to have that up close look and to be able to break stuff down the way that I do on a snap by snap, just over and over and over again. It, I, there's nothing I'd rather be doing than watching football practice like that. So it was it was great. I, I got to tell you, man. There's something to think. You know, I'm over here almost getting misty eyed, just thinking Travis Wingfield. There's our buddy. You know, when when we first met him. He, we couldn't keep track of all the different uh, freelance <laughs> gigs you were taking and what newspaper you were working for on a, any given week. And now look at you. You're spreading the wings and flying, baby. I love it. Cheers. Cheers, cheers to uh, Winfield. To yeah. Winfield. I got, a, I got an energy drink out here. I'll cheers to you guys as well. <laughs> and so with that, I want to start this conversation about the Dolphins off where I have with every other team. You like to take a look at what the big off-season storylines are. Every team has one or two. And there's, as seems to be the case with every team outside of New England, once every three or four years here, there's been turnover in your front office. And I think one of the bigger things that people have taken away from that is trying to get an idea of what, what's, what is happening. To tank or not to tank? That is the question for the 2019 Miami Dolphins. I mean, you're talking about at the end of another season where you guys floundered down the stretch, you take a brutal L to Buffalo Week 17, you fire head coach Adam Gase. I mean, you assumed at that point anyway that he was going onto the scrap heap. Who knew that the Jets would be dumb enough to hire that crazy-eyed lunatic? <laughs> so then they follow that up. They exile Ryan Tannehill to back up Marcus Mariota in Tennessee. But given the track record there, I'm sure he'll be starting by week 10. (laughs) And then they go and they pick a disciple off the Bill Belichick coaching tree. And, I mean, I don't question the hire or what it means for the organization. 
I just want to know, what is the state of the 2019 Dolphins going forward? Are you guys quitting on this season or what? I think if you if you go back to my timeline from today, Tuesday, when we recorded this podcast, like you can tell that I'm as confused as anybody as far as like the move by move process of all this, because, you know, you go back to the offseason and I said, you know, adamantly, this is not a tank job. They're not going to go out there and purposely try to lose games. All they're doing is erasing all the you talked about Adam Gaze and the crazy eye guy and the Jets. Well, he's kind of our gift to the Jets for giving us Mike freaking Tannenbaum and. <laughs> They had to they had to clear all the decks from what he did and just horrible roster mismanagement. You had guys like Kiko Alonso and Andre Branch and TJ McDonald who got cut today or yesterday. These guys were getting over their market value as far as contracts go, and that's just like the worst disaster recipe possible. And they had to take a step back and eat a bunch of that dead money in order to put themselves in a position to kind of rebuild into the future. So the idea has always been for 2020, and that's why their free agent class was pretty much not. I mean, Eric Rowe was pretty much the only guy we got from free agency. Christian Wilkins was the one draft pick that looks like a surefire hit right now. And so they haven't really added talent to the roster, but they put all their resources with money and draft picks into next year. And then they come back. And, like, I questioned the McDonald, you know, retaining him and retaining Akeem Spence this offseason. And those guys just got cut this week after I was convinced, okay, they're going to keep them around and have them play, you know, 60%, 70% of the snaps, whatever it is. And then they lop them off for a bunch of AAF cast-offs or undrafted free agents. So I I don't think that winning is a priority at all this year. Like, I think it's going to be a fucking brutal year for the Dolphins, probably three or four, five wins at best. But I'm excited for the first time about an offseason, really since like 2013, when Jeff Ireland had a similar haul and just wiped his ass with the entire thing with Mike Wallace and Donnell Ellerby and Philip Wheeler and, well, and Deion guess, Jordan. So but see, now it's, here's it's, one of that's the where we're going, that, and we'll see if they can execute it. What stuck out to me, what, what really jumped out to me, wasn't even so much the player dis- decisions that were made in the offseason. I mean, everybody saw what you guys are doing, and the Bills just went through this. We had our quote-unquote rebuild season where we ate a ton of dead money. Right now, you guys have a ton of it between Tannehill and Indomitian Sue. But next season, you're looking at $100 million in cap space for 2020. But the thing that really underscored the fact that you guys might be calling it quits on 2019 happened before any of this stuff. And that was when you guys made, I mean, I'd say it's rather unprecedented. You gave your rookie head coach, never before ran an NFL football team, you signed him to a five-year head coaching contract. That is somewhat unheard of. If you're new to the scene, usually you get a three-year deal, four maybe if you have a, if you negotiate it well. Five years. To me, the only reason a coach gets a five-year deal is as an insurance policy from the team saying, look, I mean, I mean, look at, uh, what was it, Steve Wilkes in Arizona. He got fired after one season because he only, and he only had a three-year deal, so they're only stuck paying him for two more years. A five-year deal lets you know, hey, no matter how bad things go in year one, we plan on keeping you around for a while. That right there made, made me think something fishy was going on. And you hit the nail on the head talking about kind of giving him this reprieve from the first year because they're not going to move on from Brian Flores no matter how bad they are because they're very well aware of how bad they could be. And Stephen Ross is (laughs) – 
He's many <laughs> things, but one of the things he is is definitely, ad, you know, an admirer of the star, the big marquee name that you can put up on the side of the stadium and say, come watch this guy play. And that's why they kind of loved Kyler Murray. I got confirmation on that this last offseason. They loved Kyler Murray. They love Tua Tonga-Vailoa. They like Jordan Love, too, Justin Herbert. All these quarterbacks they are enamored by are going to be in a position to draft one of those guys next year, you think. And so the idea is to kind of take a step back this year, put the resources into next year. And one of the reasons they did sit out on free agency was because they got the third-round compensatory pick for Jawan James. They got a fifth-round pick for Cameron Wake. They traded Ryan Tannehill for a fourth-round pick, Robert Quinn, yada, 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 so on and mm-hmm. so forth. They've got 12 draft picks, all that money. And you might say, well, they're not going to go out and spend that money because that's not the Patriot model but when you have Josh Rosen, who's making $6 bucks for three years, and when you're going to draft a rookie quarterback next year who's going to be paid, what, $25 million over four years, you don't have money tied up in the most expensive position on the team. And so you can go out and give Xavier Howard the highest paid contract for a cornerback. You can extend Laramie Tunzel. You can make moves in free agency. And I assume they'll kind of stop the compensatory pick formula process next year because they just have so much money to spend and they're going to have to fill out this roster by doing so. And then maybe they'll take another step back and kind of go back in towards, you know, acquiring more draft capital and just keep on pushing things down the road to build a sustained winner really for the first time since, you know, the Dan Marino era. I was so going to say, they haven't done, the they, they haven't been able to pull that off in decades. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Band-Aids and, and bubble gum and, and, you know, duct tape every single year. It's like, oh, Robert Quinn's our solution. And then how about Mike Wallace is the solution? But that just never worked. And so it's, it's nice to kind of, for the first time, not have expectations of like eight or nine wins. And maybe we can get lucky and get that 10th win. Let's just step back and try to maybe wait out Tom Brady and Bill Belichick <laughs> and let them do their thing. Just, and then in a year or two, we can maybe have a team that can compete for an AFC East title. You're planning on just laying back on the ropes like Muhammad Ali, hoping, I mean, hoping that the they point? can punch themselves out. And then inevitably you can, you can come in and float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, you know? It's like on the N64, uh, NC, or the, the wrestling game, the NC, or uh, freaking, I can't think of the name of it. Oh, what, it's a WCW, NWO Revenge. Yeah, and you have the big battle royale, and you can just like step outside of the ring and knock yourself out. That's like what we're doing this year, just stepping out of the (laughs) ring without even getting hit. So beyond that, let's talk a little bit about this head coach now. The guy with the five-year deal that nobody knows anything about, at least not here in Buffalo. He's just a guy. He's another Belichick disciple. Let's talk a little bit about your new head coach, Brian Flores. You know, we've got, we here as football fans in the AFC East have gotten to know plenty of personalities at head coach over the last 20 years. I mean, Bill Belichick's been the only constant. And I've seen all types of coaches. You get your bloviators. You get your uh, outside-the-box thinkers. Tough guys. You get some quiet guys like the Dick Gerons of the world. You've got uh, your Adam Gase, quote-unquote, offensive gurus. I've seen all of them, and I've watched them have varying levels of success. But I don't know a damn thing about Brian Flores. Who is he as a coach? What kind of schemes does he bring to the table? I mean, what, what is it that this guy, that you have taken away this offseason covering the team? So the most important thing I think that he brings is the introduction of the 21st century defense the Dolphins didn't have for the past three years under Matt Burke and Vance Joseph. Because under Matt Burke, the Dolphins are running out Kiko Alonso on the slot against like a Julian Edelman. How does that matchup work for you? You're going to lose it every single time. And so now 
they have these multiple fronts, whether it's the 4-3 under, a 3-3-5 bear, a 3-3-5 diamond front. There's dime defense for the first time we've seen this year in the last three or four years. And so they're kind of bringing in this new, you know, the the non-antiquated defense that the Dolphins have had for so long. And we saw it last year in the Super Bowl with Brian Flores calling those plays. And again, that's probably Bill Belichick's defensive scheme for the most part. But he's been under Belichick's wing for 15 years, and he has experience on offense, on defense, and scouting personnel as a defensive coordinator, a play caller. He's done everything you can do in a football operation. And that wasn't even really – go ahead. Well, I was going to ask because here's a question about this defense. Now, when I take a look at things, you know – you're talking about a defense. The Patriots are always unpredictable because of this hybrid defensive scheme. You never really know what you're going to get with them. And so that's a little concerning to me if he's bringing that kind of thing here. In 2019, it doesn't scare me so much because I don't know that you have the pieces to make something like that fit. You know, there's no Kyle Van Noy, these underpaid but very valuable players, no Donta Hightowers, these guys who can play a lot of hybrid type roles. You guys played a 3-4 last season, and you were the second-worst rushing defense in the NFL. You gave up 145 yards a game on average and had four games of more than 190 yards. So I'm assuming this season you guys are going to be leaning until you get the rest of the pieces to make this hybrid defense work. Do you see more kind of a standard, especially with Christian Wilkins, a standard 3-4 defense? Or do you think they're going to try to square peg round hole this hybrid scheme around players that don't really fit it? Well, you mentioned the undervalued players the Patriots have, and you mentioned two of their guys that I think actually are probably two of their higher paid guys in Van Noy and Hightower. But you've got guys like Dietrich Wise or Danny Shelton, a lot of, you know, Lawrence guy, a lot of guys that aren't really known on a national scale. But what they do is they they just execute their job. And I hate to use, you know, do do your job, but that's what they do in New England. And that's kind of the plan here. And we've seen it take hold so far in exhibition games, you know, mind you. But still, the way they've defended the run and they commit bodies to gaps and they cover tight on the back end with physical man coverage. And Xavier Howard's very good at that. Eric Rose capable of that. Minka Fitzpatrick also very good at that. So just the scheme overchange, and you mentioned, you know, finishing dead last in run defense or whatever it was. That's that's a, a function of the wide nine defense where your defensive ends like Cam Wake have to rush the passer but also contain the edge, just asking way too much of a player, you know, on any player, regardless of who it is. So they've got guys that are more you know, task oriented. It's going to be more of a two gap scheme this year opposed to a one gap scheme. And I actually think this defense could be good, at least for, you know, five or six weeks while it's healthy. And then they're going to start getting some injuries and the depth is so thin. That's scary. But also this is going to be the worst offense in the NFL this year. Like make no bones about that. And 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 that's going to wear, that's going to wear the defense down by, you know, Halloween at the latest. Now, Adam Gase, when he was running your team's offense, what we saw, like if I was going to try to dissect it or at least explain the, if if you wanted to, if someone asked me as a Bills fan what I thought the Cliff Notes version of Adam Gase's offense is, he prioritized short area throws, a lot of things kind of to the hash marks, to the sides, a lot of small plays that were supposed to be utilized to set up big plays. You know, you you, you frustrate a defense with screen passes and shallow passes into the flats. Get them, get their safeties to overcommit, and then try to take shots over the top. It didn't pan out. I, whether that's the because of the state of the offensive line, whether that's the state of just the skill position players or the quarterback's inability to execute, it didn't work. So when you're talking about what they're going to be in 2019, 
it's hard to see schematically what this unit is trying to be. Now, before we get into the actual nuts and bolts of the roster that's going to make this up, philosophically, what is it that you think that the Dolphins are trying to accomplish on offense? Well, I can give you an account that is, I can confirm that Adam Gaze believes that he can turn Chris Kruger into a 4,000-yard passer. Like, he fully <laughs> believes that his scheme will prevent, will produce a quarterback, you know, that he can He couldn't turn like Chris that. Kruger so, into a 4,000-yard runner, okay? <laughs> that doesn't pass <laughs> So that that was always his thinking, and you put a lot on the quarterback in this offense, or at least in Adam Gaze's offense, and he just didn't ever fully trust Ryan Tannehill to take the reins off him, and that's why they ran the ball on second down and 10 so long, which if you're an analytics guy, you know is a death to an offense. But as far as what the new offense is going to be, and you know, you mentioned the Patriots' defensive influence, well, they've got Chad O'Shea, who was a Patriots' red zone coordinator for the last couple of years and wide receivers coach in Chad O'Shea. So he's going to call the offense – I even asked Josh Rosen about this when I was down there making my ESPN debut. You know, what does what does kind of this offense give you the tools to do? And he mentioned it, and we've heard Tom Brady talk about this too in the same Patriots offense, is that this this offense will empower the quarterback, and that will either, one, elevate him to make plays at a level that, you know, produces Pro Bowl-level results, or two, it'll overwhelm that quarterback and make him really expose his weaknesses. So for Josh Rosen and Ryan Fitzpatrick, whoever the hell it's going to be, I don't know who it's going to be. I kind of hope it's Rosen at this point. He earned it so far in the preseason. But whoever it's going to be is going to have to really speed up their processing and be able to handle three-man route combinations or you know a lot of pre-snap motion and, and moving guys around the offense and changing the picture from pre-snap to post-snap and knowing where the coverage is going to fall because they want to get this ball out as fast as they can under two and a half seconds. And that's kind of the idea. So okay. it, it's going to, it's going to be a situational offense too, where, you know, second and short run the ball inside the five yard line, run the ball and just play the numbers by the analytics. That's what the Patriots did last year. That's what Miami will do this year. Now well, we hope. And then I'd be remiss because I really do want to get into the makeup of this roster because I'm salivating at the chance to play you guys. I mean, you're may you're, you're, you're doing what Christian Simonelli does every year, which is he comes onto this show and he makes me feel great about this and explains all the weaknesses of the team. And then they beat us over the head with a hammer. And I'm <laughs> stuck here frustrated thinking, what the hell happened to that team that was supposed to be terrible? But in this case, I'm, I, I can buy it. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask the question. Amongst the fan base, you interact with Dolphins fans all the time, whether it's through the podcast, whether it's through your mailbag, whether it's through the various things you do for the Lockdown Network. NFL coaching trees are odd when you try to dissect them. Okay, So, and, and I guess this comes back to the, the, the temperature of the water here and how fans in Miami are feeling. Because when you look at coaches, you got like the Mike Holmgren tree. Every coach leaves a legacy. Mike Holmgren's legacy was Andy Reid and John Gruden, who managed to oversee 11 of the NFL's current 32 head coaches. Guys like Matt Nagy, Doug Peterson, Sean McVay, our own Sean McDermott and John Harbaugh, which very, if you know anything about any of these head coaches, they have a variety of different talents, strengths, and just philosophies. And despite the fact that Holmgren wasn't a great coach, his career record was just over 500. These coaches, I mean, he's got multiple Super Bowl winners and a lot of career wins left in the wake behind him. When you look at Bilicek as part of the Parcells tree, Bilicek himself, and I mean, a lot of those guys owe Andy Reid their careers. Bilicek hasn't had the same effect as being part of the Bill Parcells coaching tree. I mean, he's got guys like Romeo Cronell, 
and Bill O'Brien and Josh McDaniels and these guys who I don't know that they've ever really achieved anything. None of them have, uh, none of them have accomplished anything. Some of them have been t- like Romeo Cornell just fell on their faces as head coaches. And you're watching Matt Patricia right now. I don't know what Detroit is. I, they didn't seem like a very good team last year. And sometimes you see shades that he might not be as competent as he, as you know, coming into the season last year, you thought he was going to be. Now, there's a million reasons for this, but Bill Belichick's understudies have seemed to struggle when you give them the reins. Is there any fear amongst between yourself, the fan base, that you could be have, you could be signing up for five five years or fewer of that? So you guys can like you trust me to give you pretty much an unbiased take most of the time. Would you agree with that? Yes. So I I tend to lean more towards the optimistic side when it comes to Brian Flores because of the things that I've seen. I talked about the you know the defensive evolution into the 21st century. That's the thing that I'm most excited about, and that could have happened with many coaching hires, but Flores is the one we got. Number two, he talked about the interviews he had last year, this year, and he was willing to turn down any job that got offered to him if it wasn't the right situation. And he said that Miami came at him with the approach that he wanted to hear and wanted to build this program the way that he was able to. And number two, his coaching staff is was damn impressive that he was able to bring in between Jim Caldwell, who of course is no longer with us. <laughs> he's still alive, but he has health concerns, so he's not on the staff right now. And you mentioned the other Patriots coaches. I wrote an article about this back in like March, and none of those Patriots coaches ever brought a single fellow Belichick disciple with them. Flores brought three of them. So he kind of disassembled Belichick's staff, you know, more than anybody else ever has times three. And so you're excited about that. And also just the fact that the Dolphins really, they weren't, they didn't go into the interview process saying Brian Flores is the one we want. He came in kind of like a Sean McVay. And I I hate making that comparison because I'm not doing that. But the way Sean McVay showed up to the Rams and they were like, how the hell do we not hire this guy? He's, he's everything we want. And that was kind of what happened with, with Flores when he came to the interview was he put together an impressive staff. He said, I can get this guy, this guy, and this guy. He had a, a real leadership and, and attention to, or the ability to command a room the way you want a leader to do. And that was kind of what Stephen Ross wanted, a guy that could not necessarily be the X's and O's on offense or defense, but a guy that can to dictate leadership and kind of be the opposite of what Adam Gaze was and hold accountability across the staff and just get guys to fall in line to do their job and be part of a collective. Now, Will that work? I mean, who the fuck knows? Because it you've got, and Omar Kelly told me this, you know, when we were out at a club in Miami, you've got 53 individual franchises within every franchise. So good luck trying to get each one of those guys to buy into the team first, not me, because that's not what these guys want to do. They're, they're concerned about their own well-being, and they should be. All the power to them. So Brian Flores has that challenge and that hurdle to get over to establish this program and this culture, but that's kind of the idea year one. Build this program, build this culture that you can just kind of turn guys in and out of the roster and overturn, you know, the high high price guys can walk as, as far as free agency goes, and then you can draft the replacement and just continue to stock that draft pipeline and continue to pump guys that fit your scheme and your system and just have that revolving door. So that's the thought, that's the vision. Will it work, man? I don't know. Like, I'm so... I'm so numb to expectations with this team <laughs> after the last 20 years that I'm not going to like put a stamp on it. But just being around Brian Flores and, and watching the way that he communicates with you know one's personality is how they treat the small people. And Brian Flores was always on time to his pressers. He thanked us. He like said bless you to guys that would sneeze. He would talk to the PR people with respect. And I just 
you really like the guy and you know he's a good human being. He's a good football coach and all of his players respect the hell out of him. Now that sounds, the sum of what you're saying here is probably ringing is pretty familiar to Bills fans because we've watched a coach come into a building and have a similar effect. You talk about how hard it is to get 53 franchises on the same page. I feel like the Bills and Sean McDermott's first year did a great job of figuring out what do we have to do? What do we have to do to take the bull by the horns here? Get the people on the same page who want to be on the same page on the same page and make it known that if you're not, well, then it's not acceptable. You know, and so you saw a transformation from when Sean McDermott got here. I mean, last season our roster was terrible. We had the, what, the second cheapest offensive line. I think our starters were making a combined $12 million. The dead money. <laughs> we had $50 million in dead money. That, that te- we, we lost our starting quarterback for a, a chunk of the middle of the season. And that team somehow went out there and won six games. And they were in a whole bunch more. Than I, I just That's what you get when you change culture. When you, when you get real accountability and buy-in from people. So, and I think I think McDermott's a good example or a good comparison to Flores because you guys went from you know what do you say a, a decent defense to now probably one of the top five defenses in the NFL mm-hmm. and that's kind of the vision they have here build that defense and then we'll drop the quarterback in whether it's Rosen which I don't think it will be or you know next year's top five draft pick you know our Josh Allen so to speak that's the vision they're looking at here is kind of kind of what the Bills did really. So when we talk about the guys that he's going to be coaching up, these 53 individual franchises that are going to make, you know, well, what, roster cuts are going to be announced next week. So when you talk about the, the makeup of what the Finns roster is this year, obviously things come and go. And the fact that we're sitting here talking about a tanking season, it doesn't happen without mass exodus of talent or a lack thereof. Who do you think was the biggest loss for the Dolphins this offseason? I would say Jawan James because they just didn't have a replacement in there for him. And you might say that, you know, paying Jawan James top right tackle money is a little bit over market value. And it is. I mean, that's that's what that's what free agency is. You have to pay above what the player is worth. And that's why I like this idea of kind of ushering in, you know, this new culture of keeping the draft pipeline stocked at all times. And so but losing Jawan James, we we played a game against the Jaguars last Thursday and Josh Allen, their first round pick, I don't think Jesse Davis won a rep against him. Like it was every Ooh. single play he got his ass whooped. So the pretty much the entire offensive line besides Laramie Tunzel is garbage. And the right side, especially with Jawan James not being there, that was the biggest loss for I'm, me. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little surprised that you didn't say Jordan Mills. I mean, you, you <laughs> he was the best player on your team every time we played Miami. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I still owe you guys a Seagram's bet for Jordan Mills now that I think about it. Yep. Oh, yeah, you do, and we'll get you, you son of a bitch. I'll do it eventually. So, so, so you're talking about Jesse Davis getting his ass handed to him, and I've, I've watched you guys got rid of Will Holden, who was an offensive lineman who had, had experience. You've gotten rid of Jordan Mills. You're, you've gotten rid of these low-end starters, and their backups are getting their asses handed to them by people of you know, varying talent levels. Is it fair to say that the weakest area of the Finns roster is the offensive line? Oh, by the widest okay. of margins imaginable. It's, you, you mentioned the Bills had $12 bucks in their offensive line. I don't think the Dolphins have that even right now. Like They have the 32nd highest paid offensive line in the NFL, and I'd be surprised if they even breached $10 bucks. So uh, they're, they're working out two rookies right now at the guard positions, and it's been bad. Like <laughs> they, when, when they fired Pat Flaherty on the fourth day of training camp, 
they made a bunch of offensive line changes, and that included third-round rookie Michael Dieter and undrafted rookie Shaq Calhoun as the left and right guards, respectively. And frankly, I didn't see either of those guys put together a full good day of practice. Neither of them has had a good preseason game. So they pretty much can't get push on the inside. They fail to communicate with stunts and twists and games from the defensive line in the pass rush. They don't particularly win their one-on-one matchups against the pass or against pass rushers. So I just, it's kind of like, you know, the office space quote, like what exactly is it that you do here at the <laughs> Miami Dolphins? And that, so I, I just, this offensive line is going to ruin the entire season, really. Wow. All right. Dude, everybody out there who's a fan of Ed Oliver is probably just rubbing their hands together right now. <laughs> Unless you're driving. And- I, I don't recommend you do that. Unless you're one of the people who's been tweeting about Matt Barkley starting at quarterback over Josh Allen. Then by all means, rub your hands together while behind the wheel of a vehicle. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I, I, I've got some, I've got some angst that I got to find a way to work through by the time we close this podcast. So not every roster is bereft of talent. I mean, even the even the the Cleveland roster that went zero and sixteen, they they had bright spots. They just didn't execute. So if there was a part of the Dolphins roster that you were going to point to and say, "I like this. I like what we're doing here. This is going to be solid." What would it be? Oh. <laughs> sure as hell isn't your color scheme because teal and orange. That that's ridiculous. My uh, my Dolphins team issued shoes came in today too. I know you're gonna love those. <laughs> uh, the, the linebacker core, and it's all led by second year backer Jerome Baker, who has just been off the freaking charts this preseason so far. And that kind of rolls over from a pretty good rookie season he had last year. And the fact that we we're talking on Tuesday, I'm pretty sure come Saturday, Kiko Alonso won't be here anymore, and he shouldn't be. He's been a bad player for a long time now. But of course, you know, like you mentioned, take your hands off the wheel because Kiko Alonso gets a bunch of sack or tackles, must be a good player. He's not. And so they're going to replace him with more, you know, sub package specific role type of players. And Jerome Baker is going to be that 100% snap taker who can rush the passer, drop into coverage. He can defend the run against the edge on the inside. He's been all over the damn field so far this August. Beyond him, you've got Raekwon McMillan, who hasn't played a game yet. He's banged up, but I like him as a two-down run stopper. And then Andrew Van Ginkle, a fifth-round draft pick this year, has played pretty well as one of those sub-package rusher slash type of coverage guys. But Sam Aguavin, the CFL cast, I don't want to say cast off, the CFL product, 26 years old, was undrafted a few years ago, had to go to Canada like Cameron Wake did, and now he's down here playing in our nickel packages in a bunch of sub-packages as well, and he's been awesome, man. He's been all over the field in coverage, like kind of like Baker. Coverage, you know, run defense, blitzing. He's been a, a real fine so far. So between Baker and Aguavin, I think Miami finally has a good linebacker crew for the first time since Zach Thomas was here. Jesus. See, now it's guys like Aguavin that most Bills fans probably haven't even heard of. Unless you're really, really, unless you're like me and you're really desperate for football news to the point where you are <laughs> willing to go read other teams' sports blogs and other teams' you know work because you, you you're that hard up for football talk. So every team has a couple of these hidden gems that nobody knows about until the season starts, and then everyone puts their hands up and goes, "Holy shit, who's this guy? Who's this guy? Where did he come from?" Who do you think that that person is in 2019 for the Miami Dolphins? It's a Guavin, and I'll tell you another story about why he is that guy. We were asking ourselves that, and when I say we, you know, us press row bros, the guys hanging out on the media tent 
over at the Dolphins training facility, but they were doing work on the opposite field. So we're talking like a hundred yards, you know, away and then on the opposite goal line because they stash us on one end zone. And so they were literally like 200 yards diagonally away from us and they were doing team drills and Sam O'Guavin comes up into the B gap and fills a run fit and he sticks the running back and we could hear it from up there. And I was like, I thought this guy was a coverage linebacker and he's out here knocking heads, you know, you know, knocking out a fullback on the way to the running back <laughs> and having these collisions that we can hear from 200 yards away. And then you see him working one-on-one drills against the running backs in coverage and they can't shake him. So I just, I think that his, his skill set might not have been really translatable back five years ago when he was trying to get into the league. But now in today's NFL, where he can be a little bit lighter and a little bit faster, I think it fits well for a Guavin. And I think that he's going to be a guy that has a big year and eventually gets a big contract from the Dolphins. Now, I'm really surprised that I didn't hear anything about wide receiver Preston Williams from you because it seems like everybody south of the uh, south of the panhandle has a massive erection for this guy. Like, at least they did through the first week or two of the preseason. I mean, there's I'm a, I'm a part of this. I don't even know why. I think it's I think it's genuinely just because I I, I enjoy the abuse and I, I I've learned that I think I, I make myself angrier than I need to be about the stupid things people do and say. But so wide receiver <laughs> Preston Williams is apparently the next Julio Jones, according to a whole bunch of Dolphins fans that I've seen on social media. He's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He's the greatest receiver the AFC East has ever seen. Um, he's going to end the careers of all of the defensive backs in our division. What is the story with this guy? And are you on that bus or no? <laughs> uh, I'm like hanging off the trolley, like on the full house intro music when they have Bob Saget hanging outside the trolley. So like I'm, I'm like half on half off because he did dominate in practice. Like he was always getting open, but also like, they would throw him routes on the end line and he just would go up and pluck them. But then he also would get deep into, you know, these, these go routes and takeoff routes. And the way he kind of stayed quiet through the route, he would stack defensive backs and then let the ball kind of come to him before he reached out to give the DB a tip to, you know, make a play on the football. And those quiet hands resulted in a lot of big plays in practice. And we also saw him do that last week against the Jaguars in that game. He got on top of Jalen Ramsey, but Fitzpatrick missed him. So there's definitely a skill set and a talent there. I mean, he was a five-star recruit coming out of high school, so he has that skill. And then, of course, he runs into the whole domestic abuse thing, which (laughs) never a good thing, but that's what caused him to go undrafted. So that's why he was available for the Dolphins. But as far as like what his production could be, I think basically what he means is the end of Devontae Parker in Miami, like maybe not this year, but down the road. So I guess that's a good thing, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see what he does. I, I still think that the premier receiver on this team could be Jakeem Grant and Every day in practice, man, Grant was shaking guys and putting them on their backs. And it's fun to watch him play because he has the best outside skill set as far as getting open against one-on-one coverage on the perimeter, whereas guys like Albert Wilson and Kenny Stills are better in the slot. So I'm much more privy to Jakeem Grant than I am Preston Williams. That's fair. All right. Well, I, I'm glad I'm glad that there is some sanity down there in Miami. You know what I mean? I mean, there's already a lot of white suits. There's already a lot of people wearing <laughs> orange and teal, which don't they don't even go together. It doesn't look nice. It's just it's unpleasant. Okay, <laughs> you guys are it's just aqua. Un- damn it, it's you, aqua. You guys are unpleasant. <laughs> Big picture, looking at 2019 and the regular season outlook, the way the schedule stacks up. I always like to look at the first five games because I mean, think about it. <laughs> when you look at what it means in the first five games. You're talking about the fact that there are t- – well, what is it? What are the numbers? I think I sent them to you. 
the number of teams, what, seven since 1978 that have gone one and four to start a season and made the playoffs? And I think only 2% of teams that start 0-3 have ever made the playoffs. So given that, the way you start is important. I mean, as a Bills fan, I've watched our team start 5-2 and and somehow flame out. But to be in it, you can't get off to a slow start. And so to look at where you guys are starting, Baltimore at home, New England at home, away at Dallas, Chargers at home, Redskins at home. By my count, that's four playoff teams from the 2018 season, three quarterbacks that threw for over 22 touchdowns and 3,800 yards, four of the top 11 rush defenses from 2018, and everybody besides the Patriots finished in the top 15 for pass defense. So listening to you talk about the struggles on the offensive line and talking about how you're assuming Josh Rosen's going to be the starter, but the team doesn't even know. This passing attack is one that could take a while to gel, and considering the strengths of your opening slate, that doesn't seem to bode well for what you guys have going on. What's your take on that first five-week stretch? Those stats you mentioned are probably entirely influenced by the Dolphins the last 10 years because, and this is one of those things that my wife will say, how the hell do you know that? And it's just because I'm stupid obsessed with football. But the Dolphins' last two playoff appearances, 2008, they started 2-4. and four. 2016, they started 1-4. and four. So there's your freaking there it you know, is. stat debunkers right there. But then also, we have two 3-0 and o starts the last six years that didn't go to the playoffs. So it's like, <laughs> how the Dolphins start means nothing, apparently. I remember but, last year, you guys were 3-0, and o and you would have thought... You would have thought, I mean, I saw a talk about how this is it. This is the game. We're going to Foxborough, and we are going to stake our claim to the division. (laughs) And they opened up the bay doors and just carpet bombed you guys. (laughs) I wrote an article said, like, it was titled, What If This Is It? Like, what if this is when they actually turn it around? And then I retweeted it after the game and said, nope, (laughs) not it. It was like Armageddon Now was happening on a football field. It was terrible. Like, you... (laughs) Oh my god, dude! It's it's the same story over and over again. Also, going to Buffalo and getting shellacked is always fun too. But so going back to this year, the first four games. I mean, I had this like you know this clever little oh they're gonna upset Baltimore in that first game because of the heat and humidity and defense and they're gonna have a plan for Lamar Jackson. But now it's like now that I've seen this team on the field for you know ten practices, three preseason games, and all that stuff, they're they're starting zero and four. I mean, let's be real about that. They're not gonna win one of those games. Their best shot at a win in the first half of the season is probably that Washington game off the bye week. And then it's, you know, at Buffalo, at Pittsburgh. I mean, I, I'm getting off topic here, but that schedule is, like you mentioned, it's freaking brutal. And I just, there's no way they match up well with any of those four teams to start the season. And it's crazy because Miami's home field advantage in September, October is actually one of the best in the NFL. But they pretty much, the NFL gave us the best possible, you know, home stretch of games, four of the first five at home. But it's going to be like in the most irrelevant year ever where they start off probably <laughs> one and seven. So, it's, oh, no. I mean, yeah, it's it's not going to be good. Man. Like, I was going to say when I was looking over your schedule, four of your last six games are on the road. You, I mean, if you guys were somehow magically in in contention come week twelve, you'd have a hell of a time. Cleveland, Philly, a pair of trips to New Jersey, week seventeen in Foxborough, which is something Bills fans are familiar with. I mean, you guys got handed a just a bag of ass in terms of your schedule. Well, you, you say in contention. Let me let me shift that per, or shift that perspective. We're talking about being in contention for Tua Tungavailoa here. Let's not make any bones about that. So, so is it fair to say that you perceive your place in the AFC East to be the basement? You are planning on being the bottom rung team this season. 
Yeah, and like up until camp and the preseason started, I would have said that we were kind of neck and neck with the Jets because I just don't buy the whole Adam Gase, Greg Williams experience. And I think the Bills are – and I still believe this, that the Bills are comfortably the second-best team in the division. But I'll say there's a drop-off after the Patriots, as always, and then a drop-off after the Bills, and then the Jets are better than Miami, but not by like a ton. I mean, I just don't think the Jets are going to be that good because of the coaching staff and the dynamic there. But yeah, the, the Dolphins are – I could almost guarantee they're going to finish fourth this year. Well, I'll tell you what, not for nothing, but the year that the Bills most recently made the playoffs, it was so up and down and such a roller coaster of emotions. We expected the team would be bad, and then they were good, and then they were terrible, and then somehow pulled it out. And Chris and I drank 361 beers over the course of 17 <laughs> weeks. So it's not to say that it's – here's what I'll say. Just – I know you're not a huge drinker, but just prep your liver because it's it's. I'll if you need emotional support, just reach out to Chris and I. We'll help you through this. All right. I'll prep. I'll prep my lungs. <laughs> there we go, sir. Where can we find all of your work and all the stuff you're doing, especially beating up Tony Kornheiser's podcast? <laughs> so it's lockedondolphins.com for the best written Dolphins content on the web. Got to get that plug in there. <laughs> also, the daily Locked On Dolphins podcast, Monday through Friday. It's a half an hour show every single day on the Locked On Podcast Network. I do have a title with Fan Sided covering the Pac-12, but I haven't published anything yet, so I'm still thinking about getting on that. So working on college football. I'm going to do like quarterback recaps every weekend too for Locked On Dolphins since I think this year is all about us finding a quarterback. So plenty of content, football, Dolphins, college, all that good stuff. And your Twitter handle. At Wingfield NFL. Thank you for that. Yeah. And lastly, because next week we do preview the New York Jets with Joe Caparoso. Travis, it's the start of Beer Watch. Do you have a prediction of beers for us for this season and if you hit this square on the head with a prediction, Drew and I, we will send you a Rockpile Report t-shirt. And on the back, it will say, I'll tear your chin off with my teeth. <laughs> I don't have a chin, so how are you going to do that? You know, it's hilarious. My wife actually looked at a photo of you. I made a note on my phone. Let me get it here. Let me open it up. It was August, it was August 3rd, 2019. My wife was looking at a picture of you over our shoulder when we were talking about something you had posted on Twitter, and she goes, oh, man, his chin really is small. <laughs> so you have a, do you have a prediction for us of how many beers we're going to drink? What's the all-time record? 361, and that okay, is with okay. a oh, – I would also suggest factor that in if you think we're going to get in the playoffs because that actually adds a week. I'm going to say that you will break that record and hit 385 because the Bills will sneak into the playoffs. And when they win a decisive Week 17 game to put them in, you guys will put down like 100 that night alone. <laughs> We're going to burn this place down. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> so oh. 385. Travis, always a good time. Thank you for joining us. Travis Wingfield, one of our favorite guests at Wingfield NFL again. And as you heard him there at the end, 385 beers. We've got a ton of new listeners over the uh, over the course of the summer on our show. And you guys are probably wondering, what are you, 385, what are, you, what are you talking about? Beer Watch starts next week. <laughs> we will count all of the beers that we drink on a given podcast night throughout the football season. It starts next week as we preview the Jet game, and it'll go through the podcast 
after we're uh, finished with our season, and we will take predictions from you people. For, of, for, for those of you out there questioning, why would anyone do this? Why would you chart the amount you drink? Because this is fun. Well, we need to. It all this. started because I, st- I started. To, I started it to field questions from my then girlfriend, now wife. She's like, "How much did you drink during this thing?" <laughs> so it became a question, and then we tried to quantify it, and the results were shocking, to be honest. And then, you know, our first season we had two hundred and sixty-nine, which you actually guessed that correctly on the season. nose. So then. 2017 rolled around. We Playoff just fired here. our coach. I'm apoplectic at points. You know, the Saints game happened. I think I actually drank a 12-pack that night and had to take an Uber home. You generally drink over <laughs> double digits while you're here. <laughs> Depending on what's happening on the field. But 2017, we reached 361 for the entire 17-week season. 2018, it came back down to earth a little bit at 261. And I'm interested to see where we end up this year. Chris? Yeah. So if you can, send us an email, rockpowderreport716 at gmail.com with your guess. It's not how many it's not how many Drew drinks or how many I drink. It's a collective thing, even though you take most of the rain on this. Or tweet at us at Rockpile. Give us your prediction. And if you are dead nuts on your prediction, we'll send you something with the Rock Pile Report logo. Oh, you'll, logo you'll, get on some, it. you'll get some swag coming your way. I'm I'm working on a beer right now as we speak. I just opened a fresh one and I'm sitting here and I'm just trying to contemplate because this is the end of the preseason for me, Chris. This is it because I, I I don't give a shit about week four. I'm not watching it. I'm giving my tickets away. It's I want nothing to do with this game. I don't care. And <laughs> by the time we record again, the Bills roster is going to have been pared down to the final fifty-three. Okay, we're going to be going into this thinking about hey, this is our team and this is who we're going to be playing against next week. I cannot wait to get back to meaningful previews. But so given that, I wanted to take an opportunity to look back at what the 2019 preseason taught us, as well as just some of our final thoughts on what what we learned over the last, what do you want to call it, six weeks since training camp? Yeah. My first one is that the depth of the Buffalo Bills is undeniable. In 2017, the Bills were a middling roster from top to bottom. Then they went into the season and shocked everybody by trading away what they thought, most people would have thought, conventional wisdom would tell you, were their best assets. And Marcel Darius, Sammy Watkins, uh, what they they let Nikel Roby, they, they packaged him up in a trade. They got rid of Ron Darby, who was supposed to be one of our star outside cornerbacks. And then they shocked everybody by overachieving that lack of top-shelf talent and making the playoffs. But after that, things got ugly, Chris. They traded away a starting left tackle in the pursuit of a franchise quarterback and then unexpectedly lost an offensive center, an offensive guard, and instead of filling those holes, used all of that capital collected to land the quarterback that they hoped would be their guy for the future rather than addressing the depth and overall health of the roster. So then in 2018, with a ton of dead money, the team just played it loose and fast at a lot of different positions. Not just offensive line, but at linebacker, running back, cornerback, wide receiver. Chris, there was a lot of positions. When you look back at it and you look at what that depth chart was, it's like you have that moment of clarity. 
we fielded a bad team and it yielded bad results. That shouldn't have shocked anybody. After watching this preseason play out, I've got to say that I firmly believe the overall depth on our roster is going to surprise a lot of people. When starters on the offensive line went down, Chris, or just weren't available, you know, you got Mitch Morse Mitch with his concussion. John Feliciano started at center for all of our games, and until this week when he was flagged for holding, I didn't notice him out there, which is, the, which is good if you're a center in the NFL. You take a look around and, and you look at Ty Inseki. Didn't play. Cody Ford. No, he wasn't perfect, but the team still performed pretty well around that. You look at all of these guys who were stepping up and stepping up and stepping up and you realize just how deep that group was. Okay? When you looked, <laughs> when your upper echelon running backs were held out of games, the running back position as a whole still produced both in the air and in the ground. Okay? The running backs probably, <laughs> that's one to look at. Chris, when we went into the season in 2018, I, it was essentially almost the same depth chart that was behind LaShawn, that was behind LaShawn McCoy the previous season when he hit 10,000 yards rushing. Everybody was pumped about it. We were all happy for him. Everybody was ineffective. Everybody was ineffective. I mean, Ford was slow. Ivory wasn't powerful. And Murphy was allergic. Literally, he has an allergy to pass protection. That's how bad it was. This season, our depth chart is comprised of a number one and number two who have more combined Pro Bowls than the rest of the roster. And you can, t just, just based on some of the early takeaways from the preseason, it seems like with the offensive line being better, they're producing. And then you look at behind him. You've got a young player who has fantastic traits, contact balance, soft hands. They're, for an offensive coordinator, you're going to be able to find things to do with him. And then even behind him, you've got a fourth string running back who is an established threat through the air, which we watched him flash on multiple occasions as well as being a pass protection specialist. And then look at the defense. Chris, when the starting defense left the field early in games, the second stringers picked up right where the starters left off and just chewed up and spit out backup offenses. Sacks, pass breakups, tackle for loss, it, they did everything. They made the games miserable for second string offenses. And that's something else we didn't see last preseason. You just didn't see it. And that spoke to, I mean, think about the Carolina game. Our starters went out there when we played Carolina last preseason and got us a lead. And then we lost the game because once our starters left the field, our team was so shallow that they just got their heads kicked in for the rest of the game. And then this year was a completely different story. You saw Kevin Johnson pick off Will Greer for pick six. What our you're seeing is dominated. Well, and that's And that's what I'm pointing to. And I guess that there's a level of depth there that we didn't have last year or in 2017. And that has to yield something. That has to yield something positive, right, Chris? Yeah. I mean, at least for me, like, I, I like our depth at wide receiver is like, I, your preseason takeaway number one of the depth. Like, I'd specifically look at wide receiver, Duke Williams making plays, Ray, 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 Isaiah, everybody in that receiving room, with the exception of David Sills, because he vanishes. 
<laughs> That's what the V on his jersey stands for, they, folks. They, they've everybody in. It seems like in the wide receiver room at some point this preseason has made a play to get themselves noticed to be that one of the last spots in the wide receiver room. There's real competition happening, not like what we saw. There's you have to be confident about that. My preseason takeaway number two is that this defense has an opportunity to do something special here, Chris. After seeing all of this play, I'm confident that regardless of what the final 53-man roster looks like, we're guaranteed a deeper, more talented crop of players on defense than anything we've seen in two seasons under McDermott. Last year, the Bills were entering the season with what I think they perceived to be a solid defensive back rotation with Trey White, Teron Johnson, Vontae Davis. Yeah. By week four, they were scrambling for answers because Vontae Davis retired and their backups weren't good. Philip Gaines? Philip Gaines was cut midseason. Ryan Lewis? Ryan Lewis was given a start or two and somehow found his way into the coach's doghouse and he wasn't allowed on the field again. And then finally it got so bad that they turned the job over to an undrafted free agent rookie who thankfully, thankfully, Turned out to be a pretty damn good NFL cornerback. Yeah, and now he's coming in this year as our number two. Exactly. Now you look at the difference between last year to this year. You've got Wallace locking down the number two job, and that pa- that pass break up in the end zone. Oh, God. Pitching a half stack over here. <laughs> They've showed well, okay? And then you look at the depth behind him. It's not just Wallace. It's a young core of White, Wallace, and Teron Johnson. But they're backed up by guys like Kevin Johnson, Captain Munnerlyn, veterans, okay? To go along with guys like Ryan Lewis and Lafayette Pitts, both of whom showed really well this preseason. The safety group. thats It blows my mind that we're even talking about more defensive backs, but last season... Poyer played 99.5% of all of our defensive snaps. Micah Hyde was just behind him at 86.8. And beyond that, the next closest person was veteran Raphael Bush at 44%. Uh, he, He filled in from time to time. He would spell some of those guys for points during the game. And he would fill in in that big nickel role, but he never really made it a quote unquote impact play. Chris, I don't remember seeing him out there on the field. Now, when you look at what that what the back end of our defense from a safety perspective looks like, they've experimented with Saran Neal in that big nickel role. They also drafted a developmental strong uh, strong safety and uh, what is it? Is it? I always get this wrong. Is it Jaquan Johnson? Jaquan Johnson, because okay. he did have a forced fumble and recovered said fumble on Friday night. And then they brought in veteran Kurt Coleman, who Sean McDermott's familiar with, and he knows knows his system. Add to that the fact that Maurice Alexander is listed on our roster right now as a linebacker, but at one point was viewed as a very underrated safety. The team just came into this preseason and is leaving it with an incredible number of bodies with a lot of versatility on the back end of that secondary. Think about how nice it would be if Jordan Poyer didn't have to play 99% of the snaps. So that in the fourth quarter when you're really looking to lock down a defense... You can put out a Jordan Poyer and a Micah Hyde who didn't just play almost every single defensive snap of the game prior. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, that would be nice. I, I just, 
I like I like a lot of what I'm seeing with that group, with our defensive back group. You look at the uptick in pass rush ability and depth that we've seen from this team, and what seems to be like improved tackling from our inside linebackers, Milano and Edmonds. They've been aggressive. And the thing I've noticed about Edmonds, if I if I have a takeaway, I haven't watched every single snap of his, but I'm noticing that when he takes on the run, he's more decisive. You know, the, the book on him coming out of the draft was that it was going to take him a while to figure out the NFL game from a schematic standpoint. Yeah, obviously he's a physical freak. He's six foot five, two hundred and fifty-five pounds, but he runs like a four-four-four-five. He has all the physical talent in the world. It was getting it together between the ears that was going to hold him back. And you saw flashes of him picking it up towards the end of last season. And this preseason, he's been very good. Very good. Both in coverage and taking on the run. I just... Imagine how... Chris, our defensive line got better. Our linebacker core is growing. Now think about that added depth of the defensive back group that was already the best in the NFL in terms of yards allowed. This defense could be something really special this year if everything gels the way that it's trending. Oh, boy. And here comes takeaway number uh, number three, Chris. And it's going to upset a lot of people who are listening to this because I'm trying to... I, I don't want to end this thing or at least come close to it on a down note. But I got I to gotta open a fresh beer for this. Dude, you haven't even finished that beer. Oh, I'm going to finish both of them by the time we're done with this. In 2019, there will be no excuses for the Buffalo Bills offense. Okay, I know what a lot of you hear that and you're probably thinking, it sounds like a really stupid thing to say. Especially for somebody who has repeatedly voiced his opinion that our front office had a really solid offseason. But I'm going to ask you to follow me here. I'm going to walk you down this road with me. And I can't, I can't do it without a fresh one. Uh-oh. You're getting it everywhere. Look like you peed your pants. Way to go. Don't slam beer on my kitchen table. Listen, I'm aggressive, especially about this topic, because I'm fired up, Chris. I've kept an eye this preseason on the team, teams that I feel like the Bills can call peers, in the sense that they're mediocre teams from last year that are all trying to be the ones that take that quote-unquote next step. They, They try to make themselves relevant again. And I've taken a look at how they've gone about their business in terms of constructing the team that they think is going to get them there. Everybody has their own approach. I mean, we've talked about how the Bills vary from the Jets' style throughout the course of the preseason. It's come up a lot. But there's also others out there. I mean, you look at Cleveland. Cleveland went out and via trade and free agency surrounded Baker Mayfield with high-profile players on offense. And then spent all of their draft capital... Capital, Jesus... What am I, Ricky from Trailer Park Boys? Yeah, draft capital all on defense. All on defense. Well, isn't isn't this uh, smart that you take Baker Mayfield on a rookie contract and you throw money at weapons and all of these contracts are going to end when you have to take all that money and give it to Baker if he pans out? Am, am I not right on that? Well, I understand it. But then you look at a team like Baltimore. They spent a lot of draft capital on scheme-fit wide receivers and tight ends. And they plan to use what they keep referring to as a totally reimagined offensive scheme. I mean, I've... Isn't Greg Roman there? Greg Roman. Greg... Okay, you think you think Lamar Jackson is smart enough to keep 90 plays in his head for a Sunday? I mean, the guy, maybe he's learned, maybe he's turned a corner that he can't... He, he can't try to scheme up 97 plays in a week 
for a game that's only going to need 60. But ultimately, they seem to think that they're going to revolutionize the game of football with this new style offense, and that that's what it's going to take to unlock Lamar Jackson's potential. But they went about their business in the way of supporting that theory. Those are just two examples. Everybody has their own way of going about how they're going to prep for the upcoming season and how they're going to make their team the best it can be. And there are two cardinal reasons that if our way doesn't work, there's not going to be a single excuse any fan or the team can give me that I'm going to find palatable. The first, the first reason is the high volume of capital, cap space, that we've spent on the offensive side of the football. We had just over $100 million in cap space coming into this offseason. A large portion of that money, I mean about $28 million in average annual salary, and $78 million total was spent rebuilding an offensive line that was one of the worst and one of the most underpaid in the league last year. There was some investment in the skill positions. I'm not going to say there wasn't. But think about the names that we brought in. Uh, Cole Beasley, John Brown, Tyler Croft. Chris, are any of those guys star players that you can anchor an offense to? No. Brown and Beasley are definitely not number ones. Okay. That's not to say that they can't or won't produce. Okay? I'm I'm not trying to say that. But there were other bigger names, more established options available. And instead of swinging for home runs, the team purposely tried hitting singles and doubles. I'm not saying it won't work. I'm not saying it's not savvy. But it was by design that going... I guess value is what this team was looking for, rather than when you look at a team like the Raiders that said, hey, we're going to go big and just swing for Antonio Brown. We're going to pay him whatever he wants. We're going to get him in the building, and we're going to try to make a run at this. We didn't do that, which, again, I'm not saying is stupid, but I'm saying it was by design. Chris, you opted not to swing for the fences. You have to answer for that. And I think that's compounded by my second point. The lack of quality draft capitals spent by this regime on offensive skill positions. You could make the argument that the spending spree we saw here in the offseason wouldn't have been necessary if the team had made any kind of an effort to bring in some offensive talent via the draft. Since 2016, when Sean Sean McDermott was hired shortly before the draft, Doug Whaley's last one, right? Since that point... In the first round, we've drafted one skill position player. It's a quarterback. Out of, what, one out of... In the second round, we have one skill position player, a wide receiver. In the third round, we have two skill position players, a running back and a tight end, who were both drafted this season. We have zero in the fourth round, one in the fifth round, who was backup quarterback Nathan Peterman. We all saw how that panned out. One wide receiver in the sixth round, two, a tight end and a wide receiver in the seventh round. Tommy Sweeney and Austin Prowell, who are no longer on this roster. When you look at that, Chris, that's four offensive skill players in the first four rounds over the span of three drafts. Three, if you don't count quarterback as a skill position. And two of them are rookies just taken this season. Josh Allen represents the only offensive player drafted in the first round currently on this roster. Think about that. One first round pick on offense in three seasons. Meanwhile, on defense, 
You have seven current or former first-round draft picks. Two weeks ago, we made an appearance on the Carolina Panthers uh, for the Riot Report, the Not What You Think podcast. And we talked to some Panthers fans. In the course of the conversation, I expressed my concern over the parallels between our organizations when it came to how they go about building a roster. When you figure this is where our head coach and that GM cut their teeth. The conversation was highlighted by this concept that the Panthers, after making Cam Newton the the central pillar of their team, they took him first overall in 2011. They only drafted one other offensive player in the first round until they drafted Christian McCaffrey in 2017. Most of his career has been spent surrounded by inadequate offensive talent. Do, Do you remember the Super Bowl against the Browns? Or not the Browns, Jesus Christ, the Super Bowl against the Browns. You'd have to go back 50 years for that against the Broncos. Yeah. He was throwing passes to Ted Ginn Jr. and a guy off the spe- uh, guy off the practice squad. I mean, <laughs> Spark on offense hasn't been a priority to this franchise under our current head coach and GM. And I'm sure that if you were to sit them down and ask them for it, there's a plausible explanation. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I maybe maybe they could if someone were to get a genuine answer they could probably spin this in a way that would make sense but from my standpoint this year it's on the staff and coordinators to generate something with these parts that they have that they've gone out and that they've spent all this money on and that they've refused to draft offensive talent to help a rookie quarterback out it's on them to help him develop into a better passer as a quarterback If it doesn't work, I'm not going to accept this idea that, well, we don't have a true number one receiver or our tight end group isn't that experienced and we don't have that many playmakers. In my opinion, you don't get to tie one hand behind your back and then bitch about losing a fist fight. (laughs) That's what this team has done. We've avoided spending premium draft capital on offensive playmakers. So in that way, you don't get to complain about your offense not having a quote-unquote star to carry the load. And I'm not going to let anybody out there tell me anything different, Chris. I feel like this is going to get really ugly at some point during the season because this is a hill I'm willing to die on. And then that brings me to my last takeaway. You want to talk about hills to die on? I need to learn to let things go and remember what this is all about. (laughs) It's supposed to be fun, Chris. We're supposed to enjoy this, okay? I feel like I felt all five stages of grief this offseason, and a lot of it can be contributed to the way people are and less to what's happening on the football field. (laughs) Chris, this past weekend, I saw on Facebook that two two hours prior to me opening up the Facebook app, Paul Wineski of Hashtag Sports and the Sunday Drive over on YouTube had gone live to discuss one of the dumbest conversations I've heard all offseason, whether Matt Barkley should be starting over Josh Allen based on Friday night's preseason performance. Yeah, it's a smart thing to talk about coming from the guy that thought A.J. McCarron was going to start for us. I sent him a message on Facebook and told him that he should have told me that he was going to be filming that. And he was, he was, he was like, oh, well, I didn't realize that you would have, you know, contributed or, you know, <laughs> you would have interacted or that you would have watched. I told him, no, 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 no. Not because I planned on watching, 
But because I would have gotten a folding chair out of the closet in my basement, I would have gotten in the car, driven the 30 minutes to your house, and interrupted that bullshit with chair shots. Like it was the WWF. Like I was Triple H and you, and he was Stone Cold Steve Austin trying to deliver a speech. <laughs> that's, that's the level of angry I got over it. I mean, last week to start the podcast was probably the most negative I felt doing this. It's just, oh, Chris, I mean, think about it. That's, I was more frustrated last week than after the Saints blowout. Yeah, I, I remember both. I mean, you were pretty irritated. You were pretty irritated last week, and this is just—you need substantial football in your life right now. You are—it's like—it's like an like NFL team when they just do practices, and then they get the joint practice, and then there's a fight. Like that's you, like because you just oh, like somebody's gonna argue Matt Barkley over Josh Ugh. Allen. Where do you live? I'm coming to fight you. The amount of just the sheer mountain of. I don't want to, what are you going to call it? Bloviation. Yeah, there's a word. Go look it up, Chris. The number of absurd hot takes that I've seen thrown around and this ridiculous struggle that exists out there to gain meaningless internet attention. And I think the kids are calling it clout these days, Chris. It's taken such a toll on my patience with everybody, my fellow fans, the journalism community, everybody. I guess I love this football team. And a lot of people who know me would call it an unhealthy relationship. And for those who share that passion with me, I feel a connection with you guys. We're all in it. There's a familial aspect to it. And the funny thing about family, that's, that, that, that's I guess, what got me thinking about this. Last Christmas was the first time my wife had ever spent Christmas with my family. Two of my brothers were in town, and we spent the day just shooting the shit, laughing, eating too much, normal family shit. The, t- the three of us went to go make fresh cocktails at one point, and my wife was talking to my mom in the living room, and in her words, all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. So she comes running into the kitchen and sees all three of us having a... F- uh, when I say a fight, I'm not talking about a slap fight. Picture Vince Vaughn and his MMA fighter brothers in that shitty movie Four Christmases. I mean, they jumped me. Isn't one of the characters in that movie named Dallas? <laughs> Which is your middle name. That's actually pretty funny. (laughs) It was a fight. I think it was their drunken attempt to try to take on the champ. And it ended because I fish hooked one of them and put the other one in a Kimura lock. Which, for those of you who don't follow MMA, that's a two-handed wrist lock where you use their own body weight to put pressure on their shoulder to where they have no choice but to tap out or break their own arm. And while this is going on, the only person in the entire house who isn't nonplussed by this is my wife. My mother actually took out her phone and was taking pictures of it, laughing. No one else flipped out because they know my brothers and I. They know our relationship. That's just how we relate. And no one was surprised when afterwards we just got up, filled our drinks. (laughs) My brother actually put one of my lenses back in my glasses. And we all sat down and played around a white elephant. We made a night out of it. That's the lens that I've realized I have to see those sorts of things through, Chris. I can't, I can't say I understand why people think what they think or take to social media and the airwaves to argue the either under or completely uninformed points that they argue. I'll probably never know what there is to be gained from having social media clout. Chris, I promise you will never have it. But I, I, <laughs> I don't even know what that's worth. And I'm too old and just disengaged. <laughs> 
from the internet to really ever try to find out. But life's too short to judge those of you that do. And getting my blood pressure up over it, that, that's not going to help anything. Chris, well, what is it gonna, what's that going to fix? Oh, nothing. Being angry is like pissing your pants. Everyone else gets to see it, but you're the only one who has to feel it. Just focus on drinking. Ultimately, I love this football team. It's not just a hobby. For, uh, it's, it's bigger than a hobby for me. It's something that I look forward to. It's given me a lifetime of memorable experiences. I've met so many fantastic people through it. And by extension, I've got a soft spot in my heart for everybody out there who pulls for this team. Even if I do want to sometimes put you in a headlock. <laughs> so with that, the 2019 season is right here in front of us. And whether I think you're right, wrong, whether I think you're fucking insane, we love you guys. And Chris, I'm looking forward to this, this ride because I think this season is going to be a lot of fun. I am too, and Cheers, head, head over to our Twitter, at Rockpile Report, uh, for Beer Watch. If you want to see what Drew and I uh, guessed and what we'll drink, there's a video. It's going to be pinned to our Twitter. Go watch it. <laughs> uh, guys, we love you. This season's going to be a lot of fun. New listeners, old listeners, we've got a lot of fun segments lined up for you, a lot of fantastic guests, hopefully a lot of conversation about some decent football. Oh, man, I can't wait. Chris, I feel like a kid on Christmas. And with that, we got to get the hell out of here. Thank you for sticking around for the longest podcast we've recorded all offseason. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. This has been the Rockpile Report. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.